Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. At this time, Monday morning, when we hop on with you at 6.03, we will not only know who our conference champions are in college football, we'll also know who's in the college football playoff, where LSU's going for their bowl game, where Tulane's going for their bowl game, where the Louisiana Raging Cajuns are headed. If the Southern Jaguars were able to pull off the upset and beat Jackson State for the SWAC championship and head on over to the Celebration Bowl. Just think about that. All that's going to go on this weekend. Woohoo! Let's go. Let's go. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one, your host for the next three hours. I'm joined, as always, by the producer extraordinaire, Miss Hannah Five Names. So when you call the show, you want to get your thoughts in. You want to talk about LSU-Georgia SEC Championship. You want to talk about the SWAC Championship between Southern and Jackson State. You want to talk about Tulane-UCF. You want to talk about bowl games, the NFL, the World Cup. It does not matter. Got to make sure to be nice to the lady on the other end of the line. When you call 337-706-0111, that's 337-706-0111. This is what we got on tap for you today. It's a bit of a jam-packed edition. We'll have Fletcher Mackle on from WDSU, the award-winning television anchor, He'll help us preview Saints-Bucks Monday Night Football. He's also over in Atlanta covering the SEC Championship game. Fletcher Mack will join us at 8.30. At 8.15, Zach Miller, our fantasy football expert here on RP3 and Company, help you get set your lineup properly for the weekend. At 8 o'clock, we're going to get a preview of the SWAC Championship game between the Southern Jaguars and and those Jackson State Tigers with Jim Klein-Peter. He covers the Southern Jaguars for the Baton Rouge Advocate. He'll join us at 8 o'clock. At 7 o'clock, we're going to get a preview of the SEC Championship game from the Bulldogs' perspective as Jordan D. Hill from 247 Sports joins us. He covers the Dogs. Oh, and if you haven't heard, at 7.30, special 30-minute interview with the legend, the man who led the LSU Tigers to 11 College World Series appearances, five national championships, Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, College Baseball Hall of Famer, Skip Burtman will be hopping on with this at 7.30 this morning. 
So we got a jam-packed edition for you. Lots of great guests, lots of great info to cover. So if you want to get those phone calls in, hour number one's going to be the time to get them in. But let's start talking about this weekend. There's so much on the line in college football. We focus so much on the conference championship games and can TCU punch their ticket, get into the college football playoff for the first time? Can USC get into the playoff? In year one under Lincoln Riley with Caleb Williams, the former Oklahoma quarterback that played for, guess what, Lincoln Riley in Norman, can he win the Heisman? Those matchups are great. But there's a lot of other moving parts here for college football's championship weekend. And we'll get to Georgia LSU. We'll hear from the coaches. That'll be a little bit later on this hour for the SEC championship game. But the other ones, the other games are of dire importance as well. Michigan can get back to the playoff. They can be a true national title contender. They have to beat Purdue, which on the surface doesn't seem that big of an obstacle. But Purdue has a knack, a history, if you will, of knocking off top five ranked teams, especially when they're the underdog. Boilermakers have nothing to lose. They're slotted to play LSU in the Citrus Bowl. That's a second-tier bowl for them. They kind of backed into even playing for the conference championship. Iowa had to lose inexplicably for Purdue to get in. So, look, they're the you know they're a big underdog. No one's expecting them to do anything. They're a dangerous team. They got nothing to lose. And. Even though I believe Michigan is going to bounce back in a big way for the Big Ten championship game, are they going to make sure to get reset off the emotional high of curb stomping their rival in Ohio State last week? Are they going to be able to do that? Because that takes a lot of energy. Rivalry weekend takes a lot of energy out of you. And on top of it, one of their best players, and a young man that probably should be at the Heisman Trophy ceremony. Coburn, their stud running back, is out. Needs surgery. Coming off the high of whooping up on your rival, losing one of your best players. I still believe Michigan is going to win this game. Make no bones about that. But Purdue is a dangerous team because they have nothing to lose. And Michigan's coming off the big win. And Michigan is having to deal with the fact that Corum is going to have to have knee surgery and he's going to be out. Done. Not only is he going to be out for the Big Ten Championship, he's going to miss the college football playoffs. Want to really see how Michigan responds, right? How they get prepared for this. 
That's interesting to me. The other game that interests me, no, you know, interests me a ton as well is TCU K State. These two teams faced off in the regular season. It was a 10 point game. TCU wins. Of any of the four teams that are trying to lock up a spot for the college football playoff, Georgia, Michigan, TCU, USC, TCU is the one that I think has the most on the line. If USC stumbles against Utah, people will be like, well, it's a good first year. You only lost two games. Lincoln Riley literally just came to, you know, to Southern California. Yeah, it'd be disappointing not to get into the playoff, but Constellation prizes, you know, playing in the Rose Bowl more than likely. I think that could be absorbed a little bit better. TCU is undefeated. TCU has the sting still of 2014 when they should have been in the playoff but got leapfrogged in the final week despite beating an opponent by 50. They've never been into the college football playoff before. I think they have the most on the line. If Georgia slips up to LSU, they're still in. Heck, if Michigan slips up to Purdue, they're probably still in. If TCU loses to Kansas State, is anyone confident that the Horned Frogs, and more importantly, the committee, is going to put the Horned Frogs into the field of four? I don't think anyone can say that with confidence. So the team that has the most on the line, without a doubt, is TCU. They got a more than likely a Heisman Trophy finalist in their quarterback. Sonny Dykes is going to be coach of the year. But K-State is a tricky game. It's hard to beat a team twice. You only beat them by 10. And K-State's best player, even though he's not as good as Dugan is, for TCU, K-State's best player is healthy. He's, what, 17-2 and two touchdown-to-interception ratio since that game? The committee's high on K-State because they're ranked number 10. Also, Big 12 championship game at AT&T Stadium is an 11 a.m. kick tomorrow, people. 11 a.m. Weird things happen with 11 a.m. kicks in college football. They just do. K-State poses the biggest threat of the four teams that are facing contenders in the conference championship games. Tonight's game between Utah and USC has intrigue, make no doubt about it. Utah handed USC its lone loss this season. The coach decided to go for two with 42 seconds left in the game. The gamble paid off, and they knocked off USC. But Utah's a three-loss team. Caleb Williams appears to be the front runner to win the Heisman Memorial Trophy. I like USC's chances a lot to win tonight. 
like it a lot. And just like I said, it's hard to beat a team twice in one season. And that makes it a little bit more challenging for TCU to this weekend because they'd already defeated Kansas State. USC lost to Utah, so they got revenge on their mind. And they know that they can kill, kill two birds with one stone here. The Trojans tonight win a conference championship game. Oh, and also get revenge against the team that handed you your lone loss this season. Lots of motivation there. I like the Trojans to win big tonight. I just do. K-State TCU early Saturday morning. That's the dangerous one. But it's just not those marquee matchups, the Big Ten Championship, the Pac-12 Championship, and the Big 12 Championship. I'm also intrigued by the final game of the weekend, the nightcap on Saturday. You'll have the Big Ten Championship going on at the same time, Purdue, Michigan, from Indy. But Clemson, North Carolina, that's going to be on ABC, of course, from Charlotte at Bank of America Stadium where the Carolina Panthers play. What life does the Clemson Tigers have left in them? They're not going to the playoff. Their quarterback continues to regress. Do we see them play the backup in this game? You still get to win a conference championship, and the winner is slotted to go to the Orange Bowl by all major projections, either Orange Bowl or Sugar Bowl, depending on how things pan out. So you still get a conference championship and a New Year's Six Bowl game. And those are nothing to look down your nose upon, even though I think Clemson would. But after being embarrassed by your in-state rival, South Carolina Gamecocks, what life do the Clemson Tigers have left in them? And North Carolina lost its final two games to unranked opponents by a combined, I think, four or five points. That's it. That's it. Mac Brown does not do well as a favorite in his coaching career, whether that's at Tulane or North Carolina or Texas. You know what Mac Brown does a really good job as? Underdog. Nothing would make the Tar Heels happier than to not only get to 10 wins this season, but to win the conference championship and continue pushing the Clemson Tigers off their perch. Can you imagine for Clemson, not only do you not get into the college football playoff, you wouldn't even win your own conference, which is weak and down this year. That'd be a bitter pill to swallow. So I want to see what Clemson's going to bring to the table. Are they going to sulk? Are they already thinking about the offseason? Or is Dabo actually going to get his guys to play up and get out, go out there and win a conference championship. So, I, I look, I, I know a lot of people don't value those anymore. I do. I value them all day long. 
And I think teams value them as well. But it's just not the Power 5 schools that are facing off this weekend, is it? No, no. AAC is having theirs as well. Tulane hosting the championship game at Yeoman Stadium, taking on UCF. The team that handed them one of their losses, John Riles Pullman, went out there and rushed for a bazillion yards in that game earlier this season. But the former Ole Miss star, who now runs Gus Malzahn's offense with the Golden Knights down in Orlando, he pulled up with a hammy hamstring injury in the last game. Hammies are tricky, hard to recover from. You can re-aggravate it easily because really the only thing you can do is rest. It's going to be interesting to see. Tulane's going to be at home. You know it's going to be sold out. It's going to be high energy there at Yolman Stadium. And the green wave with a win could go to the Cotton Bowl. The two-lane green wave football team playing in the Cotton Bowl. Wrapping your brain around that is something else, but it is amazing the job Willie Fritz has done down there and the opportunity they have in front of themselves. You also have the Conference USA Championship between North Texas and UTSA, an all-Texas affair this weekend. That'll be today, tonight at 6.30. Utah-USC Pac-12 championship game is tonight. Saturday slate starts off with the Big 12. Then you have the MAC championship. Hello, Maction. Toledo, the Toledo Rockets. Taking on the Ohio Bobcats. At Ford Field in Detroit. That's going to be going on at the same time at 11 o'clock. The Sun Belt Championship between Coastal Carolina and Troy is slit set for 2.30 at Troy. They're the higher seed. Once again, no Grayson McCall, the player of the year for the Sun Belt Conference. He's not playing in this game because he's injured, not to mention Coastal's coaches being linked to not one but two different job openings. I like Troy because of their salty defense in that one. Then, of course, LSU. Georgia SEC championship game, which we'll carry right here on the game for you. Pre-game begins at 1 o'clock, kickoff 3. Same time that's going on will be the American Athletic Championship between UCF and Tulane. Mountain West championship game, Fresno and Boise will be going on at the same time. And then, of course, the two games at night, Big Ten, Purdue, Michigan at 7, and then Clemson, North Carolina. Oh, man. Lots of great college football to get to this weekend. We got to take a timeout. You're listening to RP3 and Company right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. 
Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Needing to grab some Christmas gifts? Then look no further than AcadianaDeals.com. Right now, you can score a discounted rate for vouchers to Bayou Pop Gourmet Popcorn, who has more than 40 flavors in gourmet popcorn, Mudcat Whiskers, where you can get handcrafted beard grooming products, and Emmy's Ice Cream, which offers up supreme ice cream here locally. You can get an additional 50% off this week only. 50% off. Just use the discount code DELTA50. That's DELTA50 to score an additional discount at AcadianaDeals.com. Once again, discount code DELTA50 gets you an additional discount at AcadianaDeals.com. Don't delay. This offer ends tonight at midnight. So go visit AcadianaDeals.com right now to take advantage of this great discount offer. College football playoff will be set on Sunday because it's championship weekend. Whew, man, it's here. What are you the most excited for? Which matchup are you the most looking forward to? Non-LSU. I know everyone's excited about LSU versus UGA in the SEC championship game. I understand that. We're going to break that down for you this hour. But what non-SEC championship game are you most excited for? Is it the Big 12 between TCU and Kansas State? That has a lot of intrigue. Can TCU absorb a loss, a close loss, and still get into the playoff? I don't know. I don't think so. That's the one that intrigues me the most for the weekend. Is it tonight's Utah-USC battle? Heisman frontrunner Caleb Williams leading the Trojans' high-powered offense. Their defense, not so good. Is it the Pac-12 championship game tonight between Utah and USC? Is it the Big 12 championship game between K-State and TCU? Or is it the AAC championship game between UCF and Tulane. Or maybe it's other. Maybe you're more intrigued by the Big Ten Championship. I think Michigan's going to take care of Purdue. I, even with the loss of their stud running back, even though Purdue has nothing to lose in their dangerous team, I just don't see Big Blue floundering here. After stomping Ohio State, they may come out come out a little rusty, but I just don't see it. I really don't. Clemson, North Carolina does intrigue me, but you know, maybe you're intrigued by one of the other championship games this weekend. All the conference championship games are this weekend. Once again, Conference USA is first up North Texas versus UTSA tonight. Then Utah USC Pac 12 game. Saturday, wake up early, get it ready. It's time to roll. K-State TCU from Arlington. 
Then it's the MAC championship, Toledo versus Ohio. Who doesn't love a little MAC action? Then there'll be the Sun Belt Championship game in the afternoon on Saturday between Coastal and Troy. SEC title game, LSU UGA, 3 o'clock. Same time, Tulane will be taking on UCF with a berth to the Cotton Bowl Classic, New Year's Day 6 bowl game on the line. UCF has been to those a few times. Tulane never has. Heck, Tulane it never even went to a BCS bowl game. Huge deal for the Green Wave. Mountain West Championship is also on Saturday. And then the two night games, Big Ten Championship game and the ACC Championship game. That actually leads us to our poll question of the day. Which non-SEC championship game are you the most excited for? What's the one that most intrigues you? The one that you're going to be paying attention to this weekend? Is it the Big 12? Is it the Pac-12? Or is it the AAC with Tulane versus UCF? Or is it other? And other could be all of them. Heck yeah. Let's go. Go vote on our poll question of the day. You can find it on our social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook. Leave your comments and so much more. We got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, we'll dive into the SEC game. Uga LSU next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, oof, and I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Excited to be playing in the SEC championship game. Um, It has been um, quite a journey. I think this is a year since uh, my press conference here and um, really proud of our staff, certainly our players uh, and everybody associated with LSU football and uh, the accomplishments that we've made here in a very short period of time. You know, you've got to win it on the field. Uh, Our guys did a great job of um, playing their very best when their best was needed. And um, now we get an opportunity to uh, play the number one team in the country and um, certainly uh, have a great deal of respect for, you know, Kirby and uh, what he's accomplished um, to do this, um, you know, back-to-back years is uh, a great accomplishment. And, you know, obviously we have a great deal of uh, respect for uh, this football team that we're playing in Georgia, and uh, we're excited about the challenge. So look forward to coming to Atlanta, um, being part of this championship, and, uh, you know, playing our very best football. Brian Kelly. LSU, they are the underdog point spread is climbed all the way up to 18. A lot of that has to do with how poor LSU played against Texas A&M in College Station on Saturday. That said, I expect a better effort and better execution from LSU. I'm not for sure if it's going to matter. 
Uga is the defending national champs. They're undefeated. They have a roster filled with guys who have been here and done it. LSU doesn't. And that's the difference a lot of times in these games. It just is. And LSU, let's be honest, overachieved greatly this season. No one expected this team to have nine wins. No one expected this team to beat Alabama, Florida, Ole Miss, Auburn, all in one season. No one did. So LSU's playing above their weight class, so to speak, here. Now, it's not to say that you don't give them, pardon the pun, a puncher's chance, but you got to like Georgia here in this game. But I do think you're going to see a better effort. I think you're going to see LSU play with a chip on their shoulder. Jane Daniels, how healthy is he going to be to run that offense with the ankle issue? He was in a walking boot earlier this week. He's going to play. He's going to start. But how effective can he be? Because his ability to run is key for this team. It's what leads this offense. It's Jane Daniels' ability to be able to run the football. So, yeah, I don't know. But I do expect to see better effort. I still like Georgia to win this game. Do I think they're going to win it by 18? No. I could see it being double digits. At the end of the day, maybe being a 12-point game, sure. Yeah. But 18, 18 seems a little too much. It just does. Now, the players may not have experience playing for conference championship games, but Brian Kelly does in his coaching career, whether that was at the lower level or when he was at Cincinnati, or even at Notre Dame, remember, during the pandemic, they allowed Notre Dame to play in the ACC, and they played in the ACC championship game. And he was asked, does that experience, can he lean on anything from that? Not really that much. I mean, I, I think in terms of, you know, just balancing your schedule because, you're, you know, you're losing opportunity um, relative to, you know, staying ahead of it and recruiting. I think it's just balancing your schedule more than anything else. The preparation is the same. There's no difference. Um, you know, we're preparing just as if this is, you know, a 13th game. Um, you know, obviously the best team in the country, but preparing it the same way, Scott, no change there. But you have to adjust your schedule accordingly based upon not being able to do uh, recruiting. I like how he says the preparation is going to be kind of the same, right? And I think that's key for LSU because you look at their three losses and they're a little different. The first one, the team's still coming together. They're still trying to figure each other out, right? Jane Daniels is still trying to figure out how to run this offense. Wide receivers trying to get on the same page. They nearly beat that. They nearly win that game against Florida State. But they have special teams miscues. Still learning how to play together. Tennessee, Kelly took some chances early in this game, and he's put that loss on him. That he took some chances going for it, you know, when it's like fourth and ten and some play calling early and things snowballed on him, and Tennessee was actually, you know, absolutely riding high at that time. And then last week, Kelly puts it on him again. But AM had more to play for. They're the more physical team. They won at point of attack. 
I think that will actually help them get more prepared for Georgia. But the way Georgia runs the football, oh, oh man. LSU's going to have to do a far better job of tackling and not getting pushed around on the line of scrimmage. Now, for Kelly, he's faced off against Kirby Smart before in his career. They've crossed paths. Is there anything that he can take from that experience facing off against the Bulldogs head coach? Good players, um, very competitive games. Um, you know, one of them was home, one of them was away, and they were great atmospheres. Uh, it's just really good college football. And, you know, you're look, it's going to be a similar situation. We're going to play a physical football team that has the style of its head coach. They're going to play great defense. They're going to be physical on both sides of the ball. And, and just that's the nature of a well-coached football team that's won a national championship and is competing for another. So you know what you're going to get here. I mean, um, everything's going to come very difficult. You know, it's, it, nothing's going to be easy. You're going to have to earn everything. Um, and quite frankly, that's, that's the exciting part about it. You know, you're, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a really well-coached, football team fundamentally sound um and they're going to play hard for four quarters and it's going to challenge your football team to play its very best as well Uh, it doesn't get any better than this brian kelly's going to try to have his team pull off the upset a massive upset and look lsu georgia sec championship game those two teams have faced off a ton They're very familiar with each other. And Kelly's familiar with Kirby Smart. This is going to be a closer game early on, probably more so than people think. I just think Georgia's the better team. They'll pull away in the second half. For Kirby Smart, he's trying to do something that's immensely difficult to do. Win back-to-back. National championships. Now, last year, remember, they were upset by Alabama in the SEC championship game. They got revenge against Bama in a big way by stomping the Crimson Tide in the national title game. But Kirby has his sights. And look, he's a former Bulldog. He's also Nick Saban disciple. He's built Georgia into the best team in the country. This is what they are. And they know they got a target on their back. And they lost a ton of guys to the NFL. A ton, and yet here they are undefeated playing for their conference championship again as the number one team in the country. It's just unbelievable how that is, and part of that is the mentality that they have. And Kirby made sure to make a point of that this week to saying, look, his team isn't thinking about the playoffs. They aren't thinking about defending their national title. They're just thinking about beating LSU. They're taking it one step at a time. Not really. There's no thought about the next step. There's such a long break between um, this step and next step. This is uh, the culmination of the season, and uh, it's the next opportunity. Uh, We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. That's the type of mentality, and he learned that from Saban. That's the type of mentality you have to have. Getting to the top is one thing. Getting to the top of the mountain is one thing. It's difficult. It's challenging. Staying on top of it is a whole other thing. 
because apathy sets in. Guys decide to start t- cutting corners because, well, hey, we're the best. We don't have to work as hard. There tends to be you, – you tend to exhale a little too much, and that makes you vulnerable. But, man, Kirby sure does seem to have his guys locked in. They sure do seem like they understand what's in front of them and what they can accomplish. And Kirby also knows that he's going to have a challenge inside the Mercedes-Benz Stadium there in Atlanta on Saturday. And he talked about, you know, what stands out to him about what Kelly and LSU are going to be bringing to the table for Saturday's game. Yeah, they got a lot of talent, uh, a, a lot of really fast athletic players. When you look across the skill level of, of both sides of the ball for them, uh, they got great size and great speed. Um, they got one of the most physical offensive lines we've played. Um, they're they're really, really talented in the red area defensive area and red area offense, which we worked on hard yesterday. And then third down as well. They're, they're really uh, they do a great job offensively on third down because they, they, they don't get in very many third and long situations. Of course, Kirby, we know him for his time now as the head coach of Georgia and as long time as an assistant at Alabama, where he was the associate head coach and defensive coordinator for all those years. And he worked with Saban in Miami with the Dolphins as well. But he also served as the defensive backs coach for Nick Saban at LSU in 2004. And he talked about, you know, what has in, what inspired him, so to speak, when he first got into coaching and talked about that time at LSU. Uh, that was uh, quite some time ago and um, was my first full-time SEC job, I guess. I'd come off being a graduate assistant at Florida State, and I'd been a, a full-time assistant at Valdosta State previous to that. But um, it was my, my first time coaching in the SEC. Um, it was a really competitive environment, and it was um, the year following uh, their national championship there in 2003 so a lot of tough times and um, getting acclimated and um, a lot of expectations uh, after winning a national championship and we had a lot of good players coming back on that team I think most of the defensive players were back off that national championship team so it was a it was an exciting year I learned a lot of football uh, that season but as far as aspiring to where I am now there, there was not really thinking about that then it's a good question. You know, what was he inspired? Look, back then he was just trying to get a job, right? And, and and then he linked himself up with Nick Saban. And Saban holds him in high regard because Kirby worked for him at LSU and with the Dolphins and at Alabama for a long time. Kirby turned down jobs while he was an assistant under Saban because the job he really wanted was to coach his alma mater where he played, which, is, of course, is Georgia. Dogs, Tigers, live from Atlanta. You can listen to the game live right here on the game. Pre-game with Hunt Palmer, Marlon Favorite, and Brandon Taylor is going to begin at 1 o'clock. Kickoff, 3 o'clock with Chris Blair on the call. LSU, UGA, SEC title on the line. You can listen to it right here on the game. we got to take a timeout. More RP3 and company coming up. We'll update that poll question of the day and close out hour number one. That's all next right here on the game. 
Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. The game wants to stuff your stocking with a $500 Visa gift card. That's right, $500 Visa gift card. That can come in handy this holiday season, trying to get the gifts for the wife and the kids. Did I do some Christmas shopping yesterday? Sure did. <laughs> it's the Christmas Comes Early sweepstakes presented by Armitage Jewelers. Simply enter in the Game Rewards Club at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com for a chance to score a $500 Visa gift card. It's just that easy. It's the Christmas Comes Early sweepstakes powered by Armitage Jewelers and the Game 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Poll question of the day. Which conference championship are you most enticed about other than the SEC championship game? Right now, 31% of you say TCU versus Kansas State in the Big 12 title game. 31% of you say UCF versus Tulane in the American Athletic Conference championship game. 25% say Utah versus USC, which is going to be tonight, Pac-12. And then 13% say other. Salty C says, I will put on my vermilion color glasses for this one. We'll be watching them all, and hopefully they will all be competitive. Hashtag go Tigers. Hashtag no salt Friday. B-Rad says, got to go with the Green Waves game, but the Pac-12 game and the Big 12 game for sure because they have the most playoff implications. College football needs an Ohio State Ala Saban free playoff. Don on Twitter says, don't care about the Little 12, really don't care about pac However, many they have now and don't care about AAC. However, since Tulane is a Louisiana school playing for a championship, I'm going to watch that one. John Paul Cajun Daddy says, the Utah-USC game, because I think USC actually has the most unstable spot. If they lose, they are out. If TCU loses, I think they're still in. So if USC were to lose, will Bama jump Ohio State? Ohio State loss was bad, and I think the committee will definitely consider that. Oh, that would be pure chaos. JPK, the OD, says TCU and USC both get exposed as the mediocre fringe teams with weak schedules that they are. Wow, that man's coming in with the salt. Both media darlings would be 6-6, six and six, barely bowl eligible teams in the SEC West there. I said it, LSU, hashtag LSU agents of chaos. You guys always say that. You always think other teams can't come and play in the SEC, man. Ralph says... Got to go with the wave. I'm from Louisiana, baby. <laughs> and JPK, the OD, once again comes in. Bonus tip of the week. I put a C note on the plus 18 and the over at 51. Hashtag LSU agents of chaos. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Which conference championship game are you the most enticed by other than the SEC title game? Hour number one in the books. Hour number two. We'll kick it off with Jordan D. Hill. Covers the dogs for 247. That's next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Hey, I'm Andy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. 
championship weekend has arrived. We'll have games tonight, including the big one, Pac-12, Utah, USC. And then, of course, the rest will be taking place on Saturday. Big 12 championship early in the morning. It's got playoff implications between K-State and TCU. And, of course, the one in the afternoon, the one that you'll be tuning in for. And you can listen to the SEC championship game live right here on the game. Once again, pregame with Hunt Palmer, Marlon Favorite, and Brandon Taylor. We'll begin at 1 o'clock, kickoff with Chris Blair on the call at 3 o'clock, and you can listen to it live right here on the game. You're home for the LSU Tigers in southwest Louisiana. They have a tall task in front of them. Georgia is undefeated. Georgia are the defending national champs. Georgia is loaded. Oh, and the game is being played in Georgia. Can LSU take down Uga? I don't like their chances. But what about this Bulldogs team? Are they as dominant as they were a season ago? When they lost all those players to the NFL draft? Is Stinson Bennett still that guy, that dog making plays? What about that defense? How good is this year's Georgia team? To give us some insight there is a man who covers the Georgia Bulldogs for Dogs 247. Jordan D. Hill now joins us here on the program. Jordan, good morning to you, brother. Thank you for making the time, man. How are you? Absolutely. Yeah, Ray. Uh, everything's good. And, you know, the countdown's on. We're, we're not very far from this game getting underway. Expectations were that Georgia was still going to be in the mix, still going to be a contender in spite of all the players they lost to the NFL draft this spring. How have they been able to do that? You know, I think it's a product of how they've recruited. I mean, you know, these last few years, pretty much ever since Kirby Smart took over, typically top three, top four, top five recruiting classes. And you're seeing the benefit of that. You're seeing how they've been able to reload because – you know, even coming into this year, I think people saw Georgia as a championship contender. And, and Kirby talked a lot about we're talented, but we're inexperienced. I mean, we heard it throughout the offseason, SEC media days. We're talented, but we're inexperienced. And a lot of that inexperience, how it has stepped up. Jamon Dumas Johnson and Smile Munden, two inside linebackers that had a lot to pick up, having to replace the likes of Kobe Dean, Channing Tindall, Quay Walker, and they've played excellent. Um, and also uh, Malachi Starks, a true freshman, uh, thrown back there at safety, and we all knew he was talented, but you're like, okay, there will surely be growing pains. First game, he makes an interception on Bo Nix against Oregon, that may be the play of the year for Georgia, just an outstanding play by a guy playing his very first game. So it's really a product of how they've continued to accumulate talent, the fact that there's just not been much drop-off with so many guys leaving. You know, I thought there would be real growing pains this year, and there have been spots, but you come out and, and win your first game against Oregon by 46, um, that bar kind of gets raised, and, and for the most part they've done a very good job of meeting that bar. Stinson Bennett, he went from a guy that was a great story and a guy that had some big moments to being a very good quarterback. What's it like seeing his journey from 
walk-on and a guy just trying to fight for a roster spot to being a national championship winning quarterback and a guy trying to win back-to-back now? You know, I mean, you couldn't write a movie script and see it as being plausible. I mean, Stetson's done an excellent job. And, you know, I think a lot of people after last season thought, well, you know, he's going to leave after this because it, it can't get any better. And credit to Stetson, you know, he says, look, I want to come back. I want to make the most of the time I do have. And, you know, he's come through with it. I, I think there was a real fear among the fan base of, well, you know, this year can't surely be as good. And uh, hasn't thrown nearly as many touchdowns, but he's got a new career high in passing yards. Had a lot of games where he's been really impressive and um, showed off his running ability. He, he's made some defenders look silly on some of his rushing touchdowns this year. Um, again, he, he had a 64-yard touchdown run against Auburn that wound up being uh, one of the longest runs Georgia's had all season. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, by now everybody sort of knows Destin's story, but you know, credit to him again. I mean, he could have walked away last year. I don't think anyone would have blamed him and kind of just had that, that story. But he said, look, I want to come back and, and try to win another one and, and continue to play with my teammates. Uh, that was a big decision, and it's worked out really well for him. They absolutely curb stomp Oregon to begin the season. I mean, that was just an impressive beatdown in the Chick-fil-A kickoff classic. But then, you know, the season kind of goes along, and there's there was that lull there where they struggled a little bit against some MAC action. They struggled a little bit against Missouri. What was the difference from the team that we saw in the opener to that kind of lull midway through the season? Uh, the biggest thing was they kind of put themselves behind the eight ball in both of those games with turnovers. Kent State, they had three turnovers in about the first 17 minutes of action. Um, two turnovers in the first quarter against Missouri. And, it, you know, it was situations where I think really with that Kent State game, I think they kind of came in and thought, you know, we can pretty much name the score. And, um, you know, Kent State it was a pretty good MAC team this year and, and really gave Georgia all they could handle because Kent State had played um, Washington and I believe Oklahoma early in the year. So they were used to playing um, some big FBS talent. Then with the Missouri game, it it was just really an off night for the offense. And then you take away um, those two early possessions, you know, that that sort of gave them uh, less to operate with. But, you know, I I thought after that Missouri game, you could really tell how proud Kirby Smart was of the team. I mean, uh, you know, you would think he might come into the postgame press conference upset or, you know, a little fired up. And, I mean, he just said, you know, look, I'm proud of these guys. We learned a lot about this group. And, you know, it's so hard to go undefeated no matter what level or what conference you're playing football, but especially in the SEC. Um, but there is value in playing some of those close games. You kind of see who's able to rise to the occasion, who doesn't panic. And that was sort of the sentiment coming out of that Missouri game specifically was that there was no panic, that they each kind of looked at each other and said, okay, you know, our backs are kind of against the wall and we've got to make plays, and they did. And I do think those experiences have really benefited this team, especially now that you know we're in a, a situation where this team um, can't really afford losses going forward if it wants to win a national championship. We're talking with Jordan Hill. He's a writer for Dogs 247, helping us preview the SEC championship game between LSU and Georgia. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. Jordan, was there a time during the season – where you thought, okay, this team 
is maybe a little vulnerable. Was there ever a moment, did that ever creep in your mind, or did you go, even when they struggled a little bit, you said, hey, this team is still the best team in the country? I would say it was definitely that Missouri game because, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been the week after Missouri quite literally gave the game, handed the ball to Auburn. Yes. One of the most baffling losses I've ever seen. And you sort of went, okay, maybe we need to kind of reset expectations. You know, still thought probably Georgia was, uh, you know, still a contender in the East, things like that. But, but man, that was not a very good Missouri team that they were able, you know, that they really got pushed against. But, you know, credit to Georgia for not really letting that linger. I mean, going forward and taking care of business. I, I would say that was probably the one game where I thought, okay, you know, maybe we are kind of aiming too high. Um, because after that Oregon game, the way you win that game, even with that being Dan Lanning's first game, you immediately said, okay, you know, this team uh, has a chance to be really special. And then two weeks later, you totally blow out South Carolina. And, you know, all of a sudden the conversation is, well, is this team better than last year's? Um, so it, to me, it would have been that Missouri game. But really since then, there have been moments where they've kind of um, looked vulnerable, but not to the point where you thought, oh, you know, this team may not make the playoff playing like this. How do you make well, – sorry, what do you make of how this team was able to finish the season with Kentucky and Georgia Tech? Not the prettiest. Um, you know, the Kentucky game, they really had in hand and, you know, by the fourth quarter, not really thinking anything of it. And then they get stopped on a fourth and one at the goal line. And at the time, you know, I, I know a lot of people were upset at the call because they kick a field goal, they go up three possessions. You pretty much put the game away. But I'm thinking, well, you know, you, you want to get that, and even if you don't get it, well, you're telling me this Kentucky team that hasn't done anything is about to go 99 yards? Well, credit to Will Levis and the Wildcats. They did just that. Um, wasn't pretty, but they found a way to close that out, still win that game by 10. And then Georgia Tech, you know, I don't know if it was sort of sleepwalking going through this last game, but, you know, that was a really fired-up Georgia Tech team playing for what ultimately proved to be Brent Key getting the interim tag taken off of him. That very first drive, they go down 75 yards, convert a fourth and nine at one point, take the lead. And, um, you know, you, you kind of looked around and thought, you know, Georgia may be in for a game. But after halftime of that game, they locked down. They only gave up a yard of offense in the third quarter of the Georgia Tech win. Um, not the prettiest. I think anyone on that team would admit to as much. But, um, you know, especially that late in the year, trying to get through it, um, they did so. Had a few guys banged up, but nothing significant, nothing to where I think it affects this Saturday's game. Um, but you get those wins. You finish the regular season 12-0 and for the second straight year. And uh, as much uh, improvement as you might wanted to, wanted to have seen in a few phases of those games, um, you're at the point in the year where you check the box and put in another W and go on to the next one. What do you make of this matchup between Uga and LSU? Georgia's the 18-point favorite. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that LSU got pushed around and was embarrassed by a bad Texas A&M team last week. What do you think of this matchup, and what type of dangers does LSU present Georgia? You know, I'm really interested really from the standpoint that now LSU has nothing to lose, which I do think uh, that that can make them a dangerous team. As uh, Georgia defensive tackle Zion Logue said earlier in this week, the most dangerous Tigers are wounded Tigers. And, you know, they want to come in and play spoiler, and I don't think that's news to Georgia. 
to me, the key to this game is just how Jaden Daniels plays. Obviously, he's been banged up and was in a walking boot for a while earlier this week. I think if LSU's going to make this a game, he's going to have to have probably his best game of the season just with how Georgia's been playing and, and how stingy this defense is. Even when it gives up yards, it tends to either force field goals or not give up any points at all. So, you know, I think Georgia's in pretty good shape. There's been a lot of questions this week about the motivation of playing this game, knowing that they're probably already in the playoffs. But none of these players on this Georgia team have ever contributed on a team that won the SEC. Uh, they haven't won the SEC since 2017, um, had the loss to LSU in 2019 and a couple losses to Alabama. I do think this is going to be a motivated Georgia team, basically playing in their backyard. And uh, LSU is definitely going to have to bring their A game if it's going to be a tight one. All right, bud, I'll get you out of here with this. How do you think this game is going to go down? And what do you think the X factor is going to be in this game tomorrow afternoon there in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in downtown Atlanta? I'm going to say Georgia wins this one 34-14. I think the first half will be pretty competitive. I think LSU may have a few uh, early shots that kind of wakes up Georgia, which we saw last week with Georgia Tech giving up a few explosive plays in the early going. But I, I just think Georgia's too talented. I'm not sure if the uh, Georgia, uh, if LSU's defense rather, will be able to slow down uh, Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington, the two tight ends. I could see them having a big game. The X factor to me is Georgia running back Kenny McIntosh. He can run it between the tackles. He can catch the ball out of the backfield. He had an 83-yard reception last week against Georgia Tech. I think Kenny is playing his best ball, and I think as much attention is going to be paid to these tight ends, I could see Kenny McIntosh getting the ball several times and, and really making this LSU defense pay. Jordan, appreciate your time as always, brother. Thank you for making it. Great debut here. Can't wait to have you back on during basketball and baseball season as well. Enjoy the game and keep up the great work, bud. All right. Appreciate it, Ray. We got to take a timeout. When we return here in RP3 and Company, we'll update the poll question of the day. We asked you, which conference championship game are you the most enticed by? That's not the SEC title game between LSU and UGA. We want to hear from you. We'll share those comments. That's coming up next right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers in the World Series champion, Houston Astros. Poll question of the day. Which conference championship game are you the most enticed by other than the SEC championship this weekend? Once again, it's championship weekend for college football. We'll have the playoffs and the bowls all set on Sunday. But we got conference championship games tonight. And guess what? Tomorrow. All day tomorrow. From morning until nighttime. We asked you, what's the one that you're the most enticed by? 31% of you say UCF versus Tulane in the American Athletic Conference Championship game held at Yolman Stadium down there in New Orleans. Tulane wins. They get to go to the Cotton Bowl. 28% of you say Utah versus USC. That's tonight. Pac-12 championship game from Las Vegas. 24% of you say TCU versus K-State at AT&T Stadium in Dallas. That'll be tomorrow morning at 11. And then 17% of you voted other. That could include all the games. That can include the MAC championship game. Doesn't matter. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming as well. Leave your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids.
Up next, special treat for you. LSU legendary baseball coach, the man who led the Tigers to five national championships, Skip Burtman, coming up next. Special two-part interview. That's right here, only on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros. It's not often you get to speak to a living legend, uh, individual who's on the Mount Rushmore of the state's sports figures, but that's exactly what's happening right now here on RP3 and Company. He transformed the LSU baseball program into a perennial powerhouse 11 college world series appearances seven sec championships five ncaa baseball national championships countless guys under his tutelage went on to be great pros in major league baseball he's in the louisiana sports hall of fame he's in the college baseball hall of fame and today well he's going to be right here in our backyard as he'll be with author glenn gilbo as they'll be doing a book signing for the new book, Everything Matters in Baseball, the Skip Burtman story. That'll be this afternoon from 1 to 4 at the Academy of Sacred Hearts Christmas at Coteau festivities in Grand Coteau, located at 1821 Academy Road. It's our privilege to welcome to RP3 and Company, Coach Skip Burtman. Coach, good morning to you, brother. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Ray, nice to hear from you. It's great to hear from you, Coach. Appreciate you making the time. My first question to you is, are you tired of doing all this traveling with Glenn Gilbo? I've known him for years. I love him, but how how is he to road trip with, Coach? Well, I'll tell you what. No, he's pretty, turns out he's pretty good uh, road mate. He's uh, got some stories, and uh, he's got a good sense of humor. <laughs> that he does. That he does. Uh, Coach, uh, let me ask you this. You know, did you ever think all those years ago when you took over as the LSU baseball coach in 1984 that the program, and in particular college baseball in the South, would go on to kind of just dominate the sports landscape in the springtime? Well, I I, uh, started in, uh, you know, in the 1983, the first year, 84, as you mentioned, and at that time, uh, things were uh, so new and uh, difficult. Uh, and I figured they were about 30 years uh, behind uh, the times where, for instance, uh, Miami baseball was at that time. And I was about right. Uh, but uh, to your point, uh, yeah, after... A few years and went to the World Series in 86 or 87. You could see everybody gearing up and everybody enjoying it. Uh, I think I took our team to everybody in the state uh, at their location, and people really showed up to see if LSU, probably to see if LSU got beat. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I saw that at the end of the third or fourth year. Well, let me ask you, go back. Obviously, you're from Florida. You played, you know, your high school ball there. You were a wildly successful uh, high school baseball coach there at Miami Beach High School, winning a state championship and finishing as runner-up twice. That got you in the door with the University of Miami's baseball program as an assistant coach. 
Uh, what did you learn in those early years coaching high school kids that kind of helped prepare you for what you would be able to do in 18 seasons at the helm of your own college program? That's a good uh, uh, question because a lot of people don't realize that uh, coaching high school ball is where you uh, really uh, learn um, elements about kids that you really need. Uh, now, naturally, there are a lot of good college baseball coaches that didn't coach high school ball, but those that did have a little more insight uh, into the uh, kids they're recruiting, meaning the seniors from high school that they're recruiting. Uh, then, of course, uh, uh, at Miami, I learned a lot from Ron Frazier, not so much about baseball, but about uh, promotions and people and the community and getting your program into the news so that you could get larger and larger. And uh, Ron did that in Miami. Uh, and I kind of took it up here, and the people just jumped in. Uh, and uh, very, very appreciative of all of the people who started with us in 84, and many of them are still there today. You had the great success in high school and then, of course, at Miami where you helped them win the 1982 College World Series. And I know uh, we're going to talk a lot about your success at LSU, but i, I got to ask you about the grand illusion. That's still one of the most famous plays in College World Series history. That's the phantom pickoff play against Wichita State, and you're credited for kind of coming up with that. Uh, where did you get the idea uh, for that, and why did you think that it would actually work? Uh, I was recruiting uh, at the, uh, let's see, junior college state tournament in Lakeland, Florida. Junior college team and their coach ran this play. Okay, not naming them because everybody seems to be feel like they were the one first. But that's where I first saw it. And I laughed and I thought to myself, wow. Another coach by the name of Dave Scott in Miami uh, was in California recruiting, and he saw the play. And then, of course, uh, we laughed about it, and we were in uh, Omaha, and we were all by ourselves way, way out. Uh, nobody could see us. Uh, there was really not much to do. We finished practice, and I said to the coach, well, let's practice that play and pretend uh, we're going to use it because I didn't think we'd use it. And we did practice it. Kids had so much fun with it that we uh, put it in and then it just kind of evolved from there and met all the criteria for its use. You know, it had the right base runner, the right time of day, the right first base coach, the right pitcher. Uh, kind of worked all for us. And yeah, that turned out to be good and it was uh uh, pretty much fun and might have been a game winner or even a national championship winner. Coach, you get the opportunity to leave Florida, which, you know, you spent your high school career coaching at. You uh, spent your assistant uh, coaching career in. and Heck, you played your college ball there as well. What led but, you to come over to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and take over the LSU program like you did? I was uh, coaching with Ron. Of course, I did a lot of uh, uh, Ron uh, 
God rest his soul, was uh, one of the greats of all time. I really loved him. And he uh, he was tired of coaching. He said, uh, Skip, you do it. <laughs> he said, I'm just going to raise money and try and get people in the stands and so on. And I said, well, that's a deal. So uh, I was able to uh, get into college coaching and uh, have Ron – uh, have my back the entire way, and of course he knew what to do uh, to get get the boys and get fired up. And uh, even though I did a lot of the coaching, and uh, uh, I really enjoyed it, uh, I never thought about going anywhere. I was going to wait for Ron to retire, uh, and that was the plan. And all of a sudden, I got word that Ron uh, wasn't going to move up to the AD and that he'd have to stay there. And we talked, and Ron figured he might be there for another five, six years or more. And I had the opportunity to go to other schools, and I thought I visited up here. I really thought that LSU in the Southeastern Conference, although it was new at that time, I thought uh, we could do well. I thought that... uh, with the right amount of emphasis on the community and to get people in the stands, we could get a regional tournament and maybe even get to Omaha. And, of course, uh, that's how it worked out, fortunately. First year in 84, you go 32-23, and 23, uh, 12 and 12 in the SEC, respectable. That's obviously the foundation season for what everything came afterwards. What was the, the biggest accomplishment for you during that season where you felt like maybe the program was going to was going to turn a corner coach well in the first year uh the kids were uh not you know ready uh <laughs> to win anything uh, they weren't i had recruited kids of course but they were freshmen and we weren't really ready in the second year, uh, you could see where they could make a, an answer to your question. Uh, towards the end of the second year, when we went to the first regional uh, tournament they had since 1974, uh, we lost to Texas um, at the regional, but it was a step forward. And then, of course, in the third year, where a lot of those freshmen were juniors, uh, we were good. I mean, we had a nice, uh, strong team. And uh, fortunately, got the regional at home. We were able to win and get to Omaha. And while we weren't ready to win yet at Omaha, at least we were ready to get there. <laughs> we're talking with LSU coaching legend Skip Burtman, the man who led the LSU Tigers to five World Series championships. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. Once again, he's going to be right here in our own backyard book signing with author Glenn Gilbo for Everything Matters in Baseball, the Skip Burtman story. They're going to be there at the Academy of Sacred Hearts Christmas at Coteau festivities in Grand Coteau from one to four. Coach, i got to ask you about that first trip to the College World Series there in 1986. Uh, I would assume that that team still holds an immense special place in your heart. Well, it does, of course, and uh, those were – some of the players that I had uh, been with for three years at that time, and then they came back and 
in the fourth year, uh, we were good enough to get back, you know, to the series. So the plan, you know, was, was starting to implement itself. Uh, how to win was now a uh, something the players could get into their heads um, and and believe. So you got to believe it. Coach can't just say we're going to do it. Kids have to believe it. And uh, that was about the time uh, in 86 that we turned the corner and in 87 turned the corner. And uh, we became good. In 1988, I I didn't do a good job of recruiting, but uh, the ones I did recruit, we lost in the draft. And uh, we had a bad, uh, unfortunate, you know, like they were five for five. And that just doesn't usually happen. Had a bad year in 88, you know, average year. But in 89, we were really good again in 90. And we were getting better, learning how to win and getting back to the series. But in 91, we had the, remember, we had the 89 freshmen. And in 91, uh, they were super good. And Chad Oje, Paul Bird. Wow, Mike Sorotka, they were really, really good. Uh, and, of course, we won going away for game zero in the World Series. Uh, made one error, which was a College World Series record, still is. And uh, they were got ready themselves, the kid about kids about that time. And once in 91 that we won, we finally believed that we could win every time. And uh, they did win, uh, as everybody knows, uh, in the 90s and did a great job. And I'm very proud of the kids and very proud of what they built. And uh, now they're 45, 50 years old, and uh, many of them are still here in Baton Rouge or in the surrounding area, or I get a chance to talk to them. And I really love that. You made it to Omaha 11 times. You won it all five times. From the outside looking in, that appears to be pretty easy, but the reality is it isn't. How difficult is it getting to Omaha 1, Coach, and how much more difficult is it to actually come away with the hardware winning the championship? Uh, It's hard. You know, the the reason why it's hard uh, is that you you have to win – Two tournaments, meaning they're going to have four teams and a double elimination tournament. You have to win that, and then you have to go or or host two out of three, and then you have to win that series as well. And uh, I think Tennessee last year was a good example. They were the number one team in the nation, uh, Tennessee, and got Notre Dame in their four-team tournament. But uh, Notre Dame just had a great weekend, and Tennessee didn't. And next thing you know, Tennessee's out. Uh, that, that happens generally every year to somebody. And, yeah, you better be a very, very good tournament team. And that's where I give the crowd a lot of credit. We had a tremendous amount of followers you know, in the days in 86 or 87, we may have had 6,000 people. Nobody had 6,000 people uh, at that time. 
screaming and shouting in the stadium. So uh, we were very fortunate to have a very great community and a lot of people who were very, very interested in helping us win. we got to take a time out here on RP3 and Company, but more with LSU baseball legend Skip Berman coming up right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers in the World Series champion Houston Astros. Skip Bertman, the man who led LSU to five national championships. He's in the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame and the College Baseball Hall of Fame. He rejoins us here on RP3 and Company. Coach, let me ask you this. How important and how much of an impact did the rivalry between LSU and Mississippi State help the conference and help grow the game for those who weren't around to see it? Well, that's great that you should mention that. That's really good. Uh, yeah, the, the best team in the conference was Ron Polk at Mississippi State. Got to credit Ron. He did a tremendous amount of things in the late 70s that got the SEC into uh, uh, college baseball at the highest level. Uh, it just wasn't there. And uh, Ron did a great job, and then I came in, and we were able to do uh, – uh, do it, and then, of course, the fans started to show up. They were already there at Mississippi State. They came at LSU, and then all of a sudden we got, uh, let's see, it was Auburn, really, that was uh, third, and then all of a sudden it started in another school, and it became better and better, and everybody realized pretty soon the ADs, uh, athletic directors, realized that, wow, if they charge uh, $5 or $10, we can make a little bit of money. <laughs> and then the ADs jumped into this and realized they didn't realize. And then they found out that if they jump into this, they can make a little bit of money, and nobody, no other sports could do that. You can't make any money in golf, tennis, swimming. I mean, God bless those sports and those athletes, but you just can't draw enough people. Uh, this was the, and still is, uh, the only sport that could draw enough money after football and men's and women's basketball. Okay. Have to ask you as well, Coach, you have all this success, but as you mentioned, you start getting to a point where so many of the guys that you're recruiting out of high school are being drafted high. And, so, of course, they take that guaranteed signing bonus and they head off to try to get to the show. How much more of a challenge was that during those years in the 80s and 90s, keeping the guys that you actually recruited? Um, it was much tougher then than it is now. Uh, that's not anything different about the coaches it has nothing to do with the college coach it has to do with the major leagues they drafted here's why they drafted 40 plus rounds there was no limit to the number of people the players could take uh, the pros could take <clears throat> the draft today and for the last five years it's been 20 rounds okay and the player and the professionals don't take uh, the uh, lower-level uh, professional prospects. They don't take those anymore. Uh, so kids draft 
would be drafted in the 20th, uh, 30, or the 25th or the 30th round where they might have gone for 10000 or $15,000 back in the 80s uh, would never even be drafted now, yet alone get that. Now everybody knows uh, who the first pick is, the second pick is, because of the strength of college baseball uh, and the growth. Uh, it's kind of like football and basketball, where we now know who the number one pick is going to be, number two pick, number three pick, and so on, uh, because the media is so involved. So when you recruit those guys today, you realize there's not a good chance if he's going to be number one or two or three. On the other hand, there are many, many more people in all schools. Uh, Tennessee would be a great example where the uh, high school kids have turned down a million or more dollars and gone to college. Some have turned down two and even three million uh, and more to go to college. That just didn't happen in the 80s and early 90s. Just didn't happen. So that made a big difference. Yeah, the the days of having someone like Ben McDonald and Todd Walker making it to campus <laughs> probably uh, doesn't uh, really happen there anymore with a few exceptions. No. Uh, who was the toughest skipper you faced off against, Coach? Well, uh, when asked that, I'll tell you what, uh, probably the best uh, baseball coach, the toughest, uh, like you said, when you played against them, um, and the number, let's go, he also had, I think he has four championships, uh, Augie Garrido. Oh, yeah. Uh, who passed away already uh, was at Texas, but before that, Cal State Fullerton. Uh, he did a really great job. I thought he was the best coach that I had come a, uh, come upon at the time that I was coaching. Now, of course, I don't really know anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't see them all anymore. But at the time I was coaching, and I paid attention to it every single day, uh, the coach at the University of Texas by the name of Augie Garrido, uh, I thought was the best coach that I uh, had faced and one of the best uh, in the history of college baseball. I'm going to put you on the spot. and You don't have to answer because, well, you're, you're Skip Bartman. You don't have to, but I'm going to ask. <laughs> Who's okay. the best player you ever coached not named Ronnie Rance, of course? We know he is your favorite. Uh, we love That's Ronnie. Right. We love Ronnie, but – uh, you know, you, I mean, Walker, McDonald, uh, you just uh, the 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 list of guys, Furnace, yeah. that you coached yeah. over the years. Uh, I mean, I, I won't ask you who your favorite was or who the best player is that you ever coached, but what does it mean to you to to have that opportunity to had that opportunity to coach some of the best ball players oh, the state's ever seen? Wonderful. Uh, that's what made us good. <laughs> Got to have those players to be good. Uh, ben McDonald was the best pitcher that ever pitched at LSU in the history of LSU. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, however, there were other great pitchers uh, at LSU. Uh, many, many that went out, like you said earlier, going out to the big leagues. But they did a great job for me, and they may have uh, flamed out in the minor leagues at the AA or AAA. Uh, 
category in, in those years, and that still happens today. But uh, most of all, yeah, Todd Walker was great. Uh, Eddie Furness was one of the greatest four-year players, probably the best four-year player we ever had. Todd Walker only played three years, went in the draft. He was probably the best three-year player. Uh, even Mike Fontenot played for two years. Uh, the best single year we ever had uh, was uh, Brantley from uh, Junior College. hit 40 homers, and, of course, we won in uh, 97 with all the home runs. Uh, we It's hard to say, you know, because some, like I say, only played a year, two, three, four. But uh, I enjoyed it. I miss the kids. Woo, today. I miss the kids. I don't miss the bus trips. Don't miss the recruiting. Uh, don't miss a lot of other things that you have to do uh, to stay a part of it, uh, you know, in the coaching. But I do miss the kids. Uh, they're fun, and they're so fun today. Wrapping up our conversation with the LSU coaching legend, Skip Bertman, the man who led the LSU Tigers to 11 College World Series appearances and five national championships he's going to be right here in our backyard today with author glenn gilbo they're going to be signing copies of everything matters in baseball the skip bertman story that's going to be from one to four o'clock at the academy of sacred hearts christmas at coteau festivities in grand coteau coach warren morris's home run it is maybe the most famous play in college baseball history i've spoken with warren a lot of times got to know him with my time in alexandria over the years a great guy great story when he got up to bat you can be honest did you think little old warren morse was going to be able to belt the game-winning home run uh no uh he hadn't homered yet that year uh and what people don't realize is he was hurt and he missed 40 Exactly. 40 games. Now, when he played uh, off and on, we were 22-0 and zero whenever he started. Uh, but he was hurt. Uh, he was getting better and better. And then he went on to the Olympics from that tournament after he hit that homer. And he had 16 more homers that summer than he was drafted. He was drafted. And he went with uh, Pittsburgh and then other teams. He played four years or so in the big leagues. He's also one of the best players you know, we ever had and certainly certainly a wonderful human being, as you mentioned. No, I didn't think he could hit a homer, but yes. I did feel that he could drive the ball somewhere and tie the score. Uh, he was hitting ninth, but uh, that morning before – the World Series, he said, Coach, I'm feeling great. Uh, doesn't hurt much anymore. And I think I can really cut. And what people don't realize, in addition to that homer, he had two other hits, and he made two great defensive plays that you know won the game for us besides the homer. So, uh, yeah, Warren Morris, uh, one of the great ones, uh, great academician. He was wonderful in school. He Wonderful family man, of course, over at the bank, uh, Red River, I guess uh, it's called in Alexandria. He's a superstar. 
and his uh, children are beautiful. It's wonderful. Wonderful that you should ask about them. We'll wrap it up with this, Coach. When I talk to any of your former players over the years, whether it's Ben or Todd or Russ Springer or Warren Morris or whoever it may be, they all still revere you and talk about what you did for them, not only as ball players, but helping them go from being teenage boys to young men to actual men. What does that mean to you more than just the championships? What does that mean to you, the impact you had on so many hundreds and hundreds of young men's lives? It uh, means a lot. It uh, means uh, quite a bit. I'm, uh, I want to win every game, of course. But the purpose of the whole college and all platform of athletics is to get an education and to enjoy yourself at the school, but mostly uh, do well academically and, of course, to grow, uh, to learn how to be 19, you know, after you spend a year at 18, to learn what to do at 20 and 21. And uh, you have more time with them than their parents uh, during this college. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Final hour of today's show, final hour of the week has arrived, 8.03, on this slightly chilly Friday morning. We've had a tremendous show so far. We've talked a lot about the college playoffs going to be set on Sunday. Talked a lot about conference championship weekend. We had Jordan D. Hill, who covers the Bulldogs for 247, join us earlier. And, of course, we had a great conversation with the legend, Skip Burtman, who's going to be here in our backyard this afternoon from 1 to 4 at Sacred Heart there in Grand Coteau for their Christmas celebration. He's going to be doing a book signing, taking photos. Glenn Gilbo will be there as well. Appreciate Skip for making the time. Coming up this hour, Fletcher Mackle from WDSU will join us for the Big Easy Blitz to help us talk Saints, Bucks, Monday Night Football, which will be coming up. And, of course, fantasy football advice from our guy Zach Miller. He'll be joining us later this hour as well. But right now, it's time for us to talk another championship on the line. The SWAC championship, Southern Jackson State. Going to be held in Jackson. Southern had some up and downs this season, but finished strong. Came back, rallied against Grambling to win the Bayou Classic, to win the SWAC West Division title and to punch their ticket to the championship game. Can they beat Jackson State? They lost to them in pretty comfortable fashion earlier this season. Can they pull off the upset and win the conference title? To break it down for us is the man who covers the Southern Jaguars for the Baton Rouge Advocate. Our old friend Jim Kleinpeter now joins us. Jim, good morning to you, brother. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving with you and your family, my friend. 
Just the kind of Thanksgivings I like to have. Very quiet. <laughs> quiet and uh, eating turkey and sleeping in the recliner is what I always try yeah. to strive for every year. A <laughs> little bit of that, yeah. Yeah. Let's go back and talk about this season. From start to finish, what have you made of the progress that the Jaguars have made during this season, and when do you believe the turning point was for the program? Well, uh, this is definitely a better team than it was last year. Eric Dooley came in and did what was expected of him. He upgraded the talent level and the depth, and you could see that from the from the first month of the season. Uh, it was a, it was a better team, uh, but um, and, and he he he's instilled some things that were missing. Um, and I say all this, I, I think they had a good first half of the season. I think they tailed off at the end. Um, but as far as the the program being on uh, better ground, solid ground, it, it, it's in much better shape than it was a year ago. Um, now the season was kind of backloaded with all the most of the good teams in in the SWAC were at the end of the season. They and uh, so Southern won some key games and they, they beat Prairie View and that turned out to be the key game for them. And they they manhandled Prairie View and that's who they ended up tied with. But they also uh, have tailed off offensively. Uh, the last three conference games, their quarterback has not thrown for a uh, hundred yards. Uh, uh, Bashawn McCray got hurt against Mississippi Valley, and Southern threw for about 240 yards in that game, but he got hurt uh, after throwing a couple of passes and didn't hit 100. And uh, so I, I don't see them uh, winning this rematch, but uh, it's a better program, and uh, I would say maybe that uh, turning point was that uh, Prairie View game. They, they won that, and that, that really w- was the key game for them. Let's talk about the Bayou Classic. They found themselves down early, and they were struggling a little bit, yet they turned it around. Was there a particular play in last weekend's game that kind of turned the tide, so to speak, for the Jaguars? Well, that was a game. Uh, it was life and, they were life and death with Grambling in that game until the fourth, uh, midway through the fourth quarter when uh, the, they made a couple of defensive plays, a, a, a sack and a strip and a, a – Fumble return for a touchdown gave them a two-score lead, and then um, uh, shortly after that, they um, picked off a pass, ran that back. The score was kind of deceiving in that game. Uh, Grambling really came to play, uh, and it was. Uh, I mean, I, I remember saying to myself several times, "Something's going to lose this game." Um, Grambling took the lead. You know, at halftime, Southern was winning fourteen to ten. Grambling makes a bad decision on a kickoff, tries to run it out of the end zone, gets tackled at the six-yard line. And I'm thinking, okay, this is where Southern, you know, puts it away. They're going to uh, stop them and then score, and it's going to be over. Well, no, but, but Grambling drove 94 yards for a touchdown, take the lead. So it's like, what's going on with the with this Southern team? You know, they don't seem to – they seem to, uh, you know, every time they get an opportunity, they, they seem to kick it away. So uh, I said to myself, until it was until about midway through the fourth quarter that uh, – um, man, you know, if Southern loses this game, that's going to be bad for Eric Dooley. But, uh, you know, you got to take a game in its entirety, and uh, you got to give them credit. Their defense has carried them all year. The defense has been very, very consistent, and uh, the defense made the play. 
scored two touchdowns and gave them seven touchdowns for the year, seven defensive touchdowns. That's tops in the nation in FCS. We're talking with Jim Klein-Peter. He covers the Southern Jaguars for the Baton Rouge Advocate. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. They're able to gut out a win. It's a rivalry game. Bayou Classic is special. And now they get an opportunity presented to them by getting, you know, revenge, so to speak, of being able to avenge an early season loss where clearly Jackson State was the more talented team, the better team. But they have to do so, of course, in Jackson. Right, because of the swag you you host the conference championship game these days. What makes the Tigers led by Deion Sanders and company so good and so dangerous, Jim? Well, uh, swag coaches will tell you, and, and I've learned this in covering um, the swag. Usually, the team with the best quarterback wins, and um, They've got the best, by far, the best quarterback in the uh, in the SWAC. Uh, Shadur Sanders, uh, three thousand eighty-three yards and thirty-two touchdowns, um, and he, he does it every week. You know, um, so that by far. But really, uh, Jackson State's a lot like Southern. Uh, they've got their defense is really really good, and I think their defense is even better than um, you know. It's better than the offense. And uh, it, it's more—it's like Southern's. It's, it's been there every week. You know, it's, it's hard to score on them. I think there's only one game this year where they've given up um, more than two touchdowns. So um, that's that's a pretty good record there. And and the and only three teams scored as many as two touchdowns. So it's hard to get uh, it's hard to get in the end zone on them. And and you saw it in the in the first meeting. Southern had ball after a, a, a silly uh, fourth down gamble by Deion Sanders on their first possession at their own 26, they didn't make it. Southern couldn't move an inch and got a field goal block. Then Southern found themselves right down there again and missed a field goal, couldn't move the ball when they got down there uh, in the red zone. So, you know, that's, and then the rest of the game, they, they, they never got closer than the 35. So that's Jackson State. They, they've got a very, very good defense, a very good linebacker named Aubrey Miller. Good, good defensive backs. They smothered Southern's receivers, um, and they got a good pass rush. They got good defensive linemen. So that's that's them in a nutshell. Lots of publicity has come Dion's way, obviously, for what he's doing at Jackson State. And look, for those of us old enough to remember, Dion loves some Dion. So th- that doesn't really kind of surprise me. But he and what he's been able to do at Jackson State has been pretty impressive. A lot of uh, spotlight is being put on HBCUs because of that. As a veteran sports scribe, what do you make of his impact at that college and with HBCUs? Well, you, you know, uh, uh, SWAC, I'm going to say this uh, not in defense of the SWAC, but it's kind of a shot at the SWAC, but the SWAC's been kind of self-contained. They've had their, they've been in their own little world, and um, and that's that's okay. But I think what bringing Dion in has, has woken up, and, and and there are people now that want to uh, you know widen that berth and, and and let the SWAC let people know about the SWAC. And so there are um, it, it goes both ways. You know, Dion has brought a lot of attention. And uh, he's even influenced some other schools to hire 
former NFL players, former NFL coaches. Grambling hired Hugh Jackson, who coached the Cleveland Browns and the, and the, and the Oakland Raiders. Uh, he was head coach of those two. That, so that's quite significant. And then um, Alabama State hired Eddie Robinson, Jr., not no relation to Grambling's Eddie Robinson, the legendary coach. But uh, they're starting to look at, at, at coaches who can draw attention. And if you draw attention, you draw a, maybe a better class of recruit. And that's where Dion is helping. Now, yet yeah, Dion is going to be uh, looking out for Dion. Um, but he's, I think he's been pretty good about trying to share the, um, uh, share the stage and, and create the spotlight for the other SWAC schools. Now, he got into it with Eddie Robinson, Jr., uh, who said Dion isn't swack, and there is something to that. Uh, some of the other coaches uh, uh, are irritated that, that that Dion acts like suddenly he's the best coach the swack's ever seen, or you know that, that swack coaches, you know. And he's made some comments that that I don't blame the swack coaches for being irritated at about how you know that was a swack move, you know. And boy, that that'll get your hackles up, but. Uh, I think in the long run, however long he stays, because I, I don't see him staying much longer than his kids are there. He's got two kids playing on the team, Shadur and Shiloh, and um, he may take them with him if he takes a job uh, next year. He may take them with him to his new job. Who knows? But I don't see him staying much past last year. But him having been there will be um, uh, a positive for the SWAT. It also has stirred up a debate about, and it goes to your point about the SWAC just kind of being in its own bubble because just like the Ivy League, they decide not to take part in the FCS playoffs, which gives you more exposure, gives you more television time, more games and everything like that. Do you feel the ground kind of shifting a little bit on that with, maybe it would benefit the conference more and be able to get better recruits if you have a chance to be in the playoffs and have a chance to win a national uh, championship from the NCAA? Well, yeah, in theory, yeah, it would. But the, the SWAC teams don't have resources. And uh, That's true. if you play in the playoffs, you lose money. And if you're in the SWAC and you go to the playoffs, you're gonna you're probably gonna be playing a road game all the way through the playoffs, and whatever money it, they get from being in the playoffs does not nearly cover, uh, you know, the expenses of travel, and and just for one game it, it doesn't cover. So that's why what, what Southern Grambling is gonna play the Bayou Classic on the first weekend of the playoffs, and that's not gonna change. Because those two schools make – that's where they get their uh, their budgets. Uh, that's where they make their budgets. That's why you see the SWAC playing in these classic games. They, they, they're, they're ginned up classic games that, that really I don't know how much meaning they really have. But all you got to do is go get a sponsor. And it's just another way of making money and getting exposure. And you don't uh, – you know, you can spend – you don't have to spend December worrying about if you're going to be playing for three or four weeks and, and trying to come up with the money to pay for it. So that's never going to change. And I'm going to tell you this. The FCS schools that do play in the playoffs, they lose money. They think it's worth it to be in the playoffs. Southeastern's going to lose money. they got to go play at Stanford. So they're not going to make any money on that. Uh, they're going to come out uh, in the red. 
Jim, appreciate you, Tom. As always, brother, keep up the tremendous work you're doing there with the Baton Rouge Advocate covering the Southern Jaguars, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you, Raymond. Andy Don. It's Jim Kleinpeter from the Baton Rouge Advocate, covers Southern Jaguars. Look, and it has brought up an interesting discussion with Dion and the exposure he's brought to the SWAC in particular. You know, people always ask, well, why don't why does the SWAC take part in the FCS playoffs? And Jim's right. The funding and the money for the SWAC schools, Grambling, Southern, Texas Southern, Prairie View A&M, Alcorn State, it's not there. Like, it's not there. They, they, they struggled to make money to begin with. Taking part in the FCS playoffs, they would lose money, and then they wouldn't probably make budget. They're always struggling with budgets and having enough money for their uniforms, their helmets, their equipment, their weight rooms, everything like that. That's why they play the Bayou Classic when they do. The FCS playoffs begins that week. They don't take part in it. They play the Bayou Classic the same week. But it is interesting. You're starting to see people discuss this more and go, well, hey, should we change our mindset? Good stuff there from Jim. we got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, it'll be time for fantasy football advice. Waiver wire pickup time. Ooh, our guy Zach Miller's got some insight there. He's going to have some helpful tips for you. That's all coming up next right here on RP3 and Company. You're listening to The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and you're home for the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros. RP3 is the epitome of a high roller, constantly making large bets. But by doing that, the minimum bet is a dollar for a win, a dollar for a place, a dollar for a show. So it's essentially a $3 bet. That netted me a cool $6.70. What? Okay, so he's not a risk taker. He's your best bet for sports talk. 19. Hit me. 20. Hit me. 21. Hit me. 22. Now back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, man, if you're looking for some great stocking stuffers for this holiday season, look no further than the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. As a member of our rewards club, you can score excellent prizes like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester's Steakhouse at Cypress Bayou Casino Resort or a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen at Cypress Bayou Casino Resort. But you can only score those great stocking stuffers by becoming a member of the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free. It's simple. So go sign up today. Don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day as well. Which conference championship game are you the most enticed by this weekend in college football? That's not the SEC game. We know you're pumped up. For Tigers, dogs, got that. What other game are you most intrigued by that you're going to make sure is appointment watching this weekend? We want to hear from you. Leave your comments on both Facebook and Twitter and make sure to get those votes in as well. But right now it's time for us to talk fantasy football with our in-house expert, the former RP3 and company league champion, Zach Miller joins us now. Zach, good morning to you, bud. How are you? 
Good morning, sir. I'm doing great. Oh, you sound like you're doing great. All right. We're to the point now where leagues are beginning playoffs either this week or next week. So really, trade deadline is coming gone. There's not going to be a, you know, a great player cut or anything like that at this time. Everyone's gearing up for the playoffs. So really, this is the time, right, where you're trying to beef up your roster, you're trying to win your matchups, and a lot of times you're going to be doing that with the waiver wire and doing a deep dive, right? That's when you're doing this? Absolutely. Uh, This is the time to make those final tweaks to your roster. All right, so let's start there. You're trying to make the final tweaks to the roster. Give me a guy that's kind of under the radar, so to speak, that maybe guys need to pick up for this week's matchup, whether they start their playoffs now or if it's next week? That's a good question. Uh, starting with the quarterback position, we're going to say Mike White. Yeah, Mike White. And it's Mike not White? Talk about, talk about, talk about. Oh. You and I are sitting here talking about Mike White. Yeah, that's right. This All is right. fantasy, man. This is fantasy. I got a great <laughs> analogy for you, Ray. All right. Uh, the very first year I won a championship, I picked up. Kirk Cousins, the week when he was still with the Washington Redskins at the time, the week that RG3 got hurt, I had no idea what he was going to do, how good he was going to play. And I literally started him in the first week of the playoffs, and I benched Eli Manning, who was a good quarterback at the time, who just had a horrible matchup. But Kirk Cousins had a favorable matchup, literally won my matchup, and I ended up winning my first championship with Kirk Cousins in his like second or third professional start. Uh, so it's just one of those things. Fantasy football is all about matchups. You get the right guy against the right teams at the right time, and you you just have to play the matchups. And that's what Mike White has. Yes, he, he looked great last week, but I'm more excited about his playoff matchups. He gets teams like the Vikings, the Lions, the Jaguars, and the Seahawks. So when you pick up a streaming quarterback, you're hoping for you, you get a good matchup. He literally has a good month of matchups. So – um, if you have somebody like a Joe Burrow or a Tua who's your starting quarterback, they have very tough fantasy matchups. Yes, you might have to be bold and bench somebody like a Tua who has a poor matchup and start a Mike White if you want to win your championship. you got to risk it for the biscuit, right? Risk it for the biscuit, this man says, talking Mike White. All right, give me somebody else that is out there on the waiver wire that can be picked up in most leagues that – You definitely should go scoop up right now if you want to try to win a championship. Sure. Believe it or not, Rashad White is available in 49% of leagues, which is is crazy. Yes, I know that Fournette is, you know, getting healthier. But the guy just had 14 carries, nine receptions. He's been very efficient with his touches. He's earned the role of the lead back in that offense. Uh, Also, guys like Isaiah Pacheco, he's available in 45% of leagues. And since week 10, he's averaged at least 15 carries a game. He's getting all the goal line touches. Um, He's as close as you can get to a bell cow in a Kansas City offense. So, um, And if you're looking at wide receivers, Zay Jones is still available in about 75% of leagues. Um, He's elevated himself above Marvin Jones with his play recently. And the Jaguars also have a pretty favorable playoff schedule with some of the defenses they're going against. So when you start looking at some of these guys who may not be the man in their offense, but, you know, second or third, and just are getting that opportunity at the right time, uh, it's going to pay dividends for you. Talking with Zach Miller, RP3 and Company, fantasy football expert. All right, bud, keep going. Give us some more deep dives here. Obviously, 
in some leagues like the RP3 and Company League, we have, you know, 1,800 different teams. So it's, it's kind of slim picking. So give us a real deep dive here on a, on a player that people should go out there, especially if you're in a 12 or 14 team league that you should go pick up. So maybe the tight end position because tight ends are very scarce. Somebody like a Foster Morrow, he's averaged double-digit points in two of the last three games. Um, we have no idea when Waller's going to return. Um, and that Vegas defense can't really stop anybody, so they're having to throw the ball a lot to keep themselves in the game. So just by volume and opportunity, a pickup like a Foster Morrow, who's actually available in about 80% of leagues, um, may be a very strong play going down the stretch. One more question before I let you go. Is it beneficial if you're somehow in the playoff hunt or starting your playoffs and you have Russell Wilson, is it just a better decision to bench him and not have a quarterback and get no points than rather play him? <laughs> it's almost there, but no, it, it's not to that point yet because uh, um, believe it or not, that Denver actually has a pretty decent playoff schedule and he's had some good playoff matchups as well and only scored 10, 12 points. Uh, but that 10, 12 points is, you know, still better than zero. So mm-hmm. I'm asking for a friend. Because... Talk him out there begrudgingly. <laughs> Zach, appreciate your time as always, brother. Enjoy the weekend and we'll talk to you next week, bud. That was good, brother. Yeah. You know, having Russell Wilson on your fantasy football team is not it's 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 paid off as well as it has for the Broncos actually having him play quarterback for them. Woof. That's a lot of money for a guy to be worse than Joe Flacco. Just saying. We got to take a timeout. When we return, it'll be time for the Big Easy Blitz. That's right. Saints, can they get back on track? Monday Night Football against Tampa Bay. Tom Brady and company. We'll preview it with Fletcher Mackle of WDSU out of New Orleans. That's next right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. Houdan is ready for Saints talk. Begin the Camaro. Breaks through, spins at the two, into the end zone. Touchdown! Time to talk Saints with the Big Easy Blitz here on RP3 and Company. This man does it all. Our next guest. He's right now in Atlanta for the SEC championship game between LSU and Georgia, which will be kicking off tomorrow. Of course, you can listen to it live right here on our station. The game pregame begins at 1, kickoff 3 with Chris Blair on the call. But then he's going to come back home, or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just fly down to Tampa and cover the Monday night football game because he does it all. Fletcher Mackle from WDSU now joins us here. On RP3 and Company, Fletcher, Bud, how you doing? I am doing well. Uh, yeah, got to Atlanta last night. Excited to see if the Tigers can pull off a David versus Goliath like upset here. So, what's the game plan? You're going to cover the championship game, and then you're just going to convince your bosses, "Hey, man, just let me go down to Tampa. I'll take care of Monday Night Football too." You know, I wish. Unfortunately, I am not going to Tampa. I am. Uh, I am headed back home on Sunday for. Sugar Bowl announcements, oh, that's and, right. uh, and I'll probably catch the tail end of the Pelicans matinee against the Denver Nuggets, which is a big one. Uh, 
and and sadly, you know, I mean, I hate to say this because I love the Saints, and the Saints is kind of our bread and butter in New Orleans. Um, but at four and eight, you know, this week has been all about Tulane and Southern and Southeastern, and of course LSU and even the Pelicans a little bit. I think the Saints have got to, you know, string together a few W's before we uh, we maybe look. I know they're still in it, which is crazy at four and eight in the way they played, but. Right now, this week, I, I think deservingly, it's been more about the, the four teams chasing a championship, so to say. Oh, the Saints! All right, let's start. Let's start there. I was trying not to. I was trying not to start off the 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 interview by talking about the black and gold, but that's why we're bringing you on for, bud. Okay, so uh, defense goes out there, holds what I view probably one of the best teams in the NFC or is going to be the best team in the NFC when it's all said and done, San Francisco 49ers, on the road, holds them to 13 points. And yet, the offense decided to take a nap and not show up. Why can't this team just get it together and play both offense and defense in this single game? I mean, because they're just not a good football team. I mean, that, that that's the simple answer. I mean, if there was an answer where you could say, this is what's hurting us. I mean, you could, it, would be, it would be that easy to fix. But, I mean, here's the thing. They're good enough to beat bad teams. I mean, we saw that case in point the, the week before they went out to San Francisco when they actually play their cleanest game of the season. They have no penalties on offense or defense. We saw that in the Raiders game when they put it together. But they go from playing a team that is probably – on even footing with them or beneath them, to a team punching above their weight, so to say, and they're just not in that class right now. And so, look, they're still sloppy. They're still the most penalized team, the most false starts in the league. That, that's a discipline issue, and, and that's something that falls on Dennis Allen. But I also think something that falls on the front office is the fact that at the most important position, you don't have someone that's capable of winning games for you. And I know that the quarterback gets too much praise and too much blame, but I go back to, like, the Cincinnati game. The Saints were right there with a Cincinnati team that is ascending and, and could make another run in the playoffs with Joe Burrow. But in the fourth quarter, Andy Dalton struggled to get first down. Joe Burrow went 7 of 8 for 116 yards and a touchdown. He was the, the alpha quarterback, and, and we saw that for so many years with Drew Brees. If it was a close game in the fourth quarter, guess who was going to lift New Orleans to a victory? Drew Brees. And it happened to Todd. Now the Saints don't have a quarterback. So it, it, San Francisco, look, that defense is great. But the fact that your defense held Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey, two of the best playmakers in the league, to 92 total yards, the Saints defense did its job. The offense was just, I mean, the turnovers from Kamara, the inability to, you know, to pick up first downs. I get it. The officiating was terrible, and, and, and there were a couple of bad calls. But nonetheless, it, it's just it's not a good situation this year. And, look, I'll, I'll give them this. Everybody keeps asking me, Dennis Allen has not lost the locker room. They are still playing hard. The good news is, is they're still playing for something. I mean, if they beat Tampa, you know, this is a turning point. They even One of these bad teams is going, going to the playoffs and hosting a playoff game. If they beat Tampa, I would say the Saints may be in the driver's seat for that because they'll have a bye, then they'll get Atlanta, and then they can really make potentially a move. And, and be the best of the worst in this NFC South division. But losing to Tampa, I, I think, you know, mostly ends what, you know, has been a life support season so far in the NFC South. 
You're, you're right because if they win Monday night and Atlanta loses, they'll be a half game back, right? And they'll control their own destiny because they'll still play the Dirty Birds and they'll play the Panthers. But this team hasn't proven they can win multiple games in a row, right? So that that's the other thing about it is that they're just so inconsistent. And, and I know speaking to some fans, Fletcher, some of them would just wish they'd just go ahead and lose and just be done with it and put them out of their misery because they'd rather just move on to something else instead of being just strung along because the division's so bad. I can assure you that there's a 78-year-old that lives in Lakeview in New Orleans. Her name is Judy Mackle, and she's my mom, and she would be one of those people that I think for a lot of hardcore fans in New Orleans right now it's it's purgatory and it's not fun that you know we have an extremely well-educated football fan base in Louisiana because we have such great football in this state so these fans know this is not a good football team but yet they they don't want to give up because they also understand that the division is so bad and they can get into the playoffs and truly once you get into the playoffs anything can happen I mean I go back I was in Seattle covering the beast mode game the Saints were the the division or the wild card team at 10 and 6 after their Super Bowl year, and they had to go to Seattle and play a Seattle team that finished 7 and but still won their division. The Saints were the biggest road favorite in NFL playoff history, modern playoff history, and yet they went out there and lost. So anything can happen in the playoffs. But you're right, though. Most fans that know football know that this isn't a team. All the penalties, all the inconsistencies, they haven't won back-to-back games since the middle of last or the end of last year. Um, once they got past Thanksgiving, they won you know, a few games in a row. But it's been over a year now since they won back-to-back games. Most fans know this isn't a, a football team that's you know, going to end up in the Super Bowl. But we're still holding out hope, or most fans are holding out hope, because they know the division is bad and there's still a chance. But you're right. I think some fans probably wish, boy, I wish Tampa was 8-3 and three right now because the same season would be over and I could kind of, you know, turn my attention to something else in the fandom world, be it LSU, Tulane, Pelicans, whatever your choice is. We're talking with Fletcher Michael, WDSU, NBC Sports anchor. He joins us here for the Big Easy Blitz. What's wrong with Alvin Kamara? Um, so, yeah, that's another good question. I mean, look, for the first time in his career, he fumbled twice in a game. You know, he had the big speech after one of the losses, and then he showed up in, in, in a massive way um, in, in, in the Raiders game. You know, he, they, they, they have a loss, a tough loss. Alvin Kamara speaks to the team. He says he's a leader and he's got to do more, and he steps up. Again, I don't know how much is, is his fault or – if it's the inability to put together a concise passing attack to involve him as one of the best pass-catching running backs or to open up the holes that he runs through. Because, like, I see the guy that has always been that guy. Like, I don't look at Alvin Kamara and think, boy, he looks slow or he looks checked out. Like, I don't see that in Alvin Kamara. I do see, you know, timing miscues, and I see some body language after some plays that may not be what you'd want, like, you know, passes that – were perfect from Drew Brees that aren't now, and a little bit of body language that's not perfect that you'd like to see. Um, so what's wrong with him, I would say, is simply frustration in the fact that this is a high IQ football player who was indoctrinated into the NFL with Sean Payton and Drew Brees and knew the offense and absorbed that offense the way they wanted him to and operated it the way they wanted him to. And now in the last two years, 
he has seen that offense and its inability to operate how it used to. I mean, think about 2018. I mean, 17, 18, even into 19. I mean, the Saints offense was, you know, I mean, hitting on all cylinders. Drew Brees, you know, hadn't lost the ability to go deep yet. And, and so he saw it, what it was supposed to be, how it's supposed to operate. And now I think he's frustrated because he sees what it, he knows what it's supposed to be. And he sees it, but they can't execute it. And there's only so much he can do. And so that's what I would say is the biggest thing. Not a guy that looks different physically or a guy that is a different player, just a guy that looks frustrated to me. As you mentioned before, Fletcher, despite how much they have struggled and just how bad they've looked week in and week out, the division is trash. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers aren't that much better. And New Orleans kind of owns Tampa Bay since Tom Brady arrived in town with the exception of that one playoff game. What do the Saints need to do Monday night to go in there and steal a win away from Tampa? They need to have another defensive performance like they had against San Francisco. That Again, and then look, they've done a good job against Brady. I mean, look, last year they shut him out in Tampa when Taysom Hill was playing quarterback in December. Uh, you know, around this time, a little after this time, right before Christmas, when Sean Payton had COVID and couldn't play or couldn't coach. Um, they won 9 nothing, three field goals. They managed the game. They did a great job defensively on Brady. They get after Brady. And, and so, I, I mean, look, they probably win that game in the Superdome if Jameis doesn't become a turnover machine and throw three interceptions in the fourth quarter. So, they, you're, you are right. They have had Brady's number. And Dennis Allen has, and his defense have manned up against Brady since he arrived in Tampa during the regular season. Obviously, the one playoff game didn't work out. So I think the defense needs to build off of what they did last weekend. Um, and, and then the offense just needs to find its footing just a little bit. And maybe the fact that they're not playing this juggernaut defense like San Francisco's defense is, and maybe they can have a breakthrough and win a close, ugly game. Look, here's the thing. There's not going to be a lot of pretty games this year. I mean, look, there's, our, our artistic points and artistic integrity is, is gone at this point. Like, you're – you're in an ugly division, and you're going to win ugly football games. And if you get to the playoffs that way, so be it. And and, and that's what it's going to be. But they can go down to Tampa and, and, and win an ugly, defensive, low-scoring, frustrating football game. There's no doubt in my mind if the defense plays that well. And just it's crazy to think, Fletcher, if they do that, they get a win, then they get the bye, right? And then they have Atlanta at home on a Saturday. And if they win that game, they're in the division lead. Like, like <laughs> they, they, they could be hosting a playoff game in January. Just, it's crazy to think as bad as this team has played, as ugly as they looked, as incompetent as they appear to be, they still could be a playoff team. It's just crazy. That, that, that's, again, they may host the Dallas Cowboys. Like, and, and this gets back to this. You know, there's very few times, and we can go back in history, you know, the 2014 Carolina Panthers. In 2014, the NFC South was trash. The, the Saints went 7-9. Carolina won the division with a 7-8-1 record and hosted a playoff game. I referenced Seattle, the NFC West back in 2010. I remember it was the Rams in Seattle in the last game of the season. One of them is going to get to 79 and win the division and host the playoff game. And again, not only did they host that game, but they won that game, which is, is crazy to me. And there's a lot of, you know, times or a handful of times in modern NFL history where it's happened that, yeah, one of these teams, 
be it Tampa, New Orleans, Atlanta. I mean, Carolina is still not out of it, and they have basically punted on the season. They fired their coach, traded their best player, and are playing like their third-string quarterback, yet they could still win the division, which is unheard of. So you're right. This division is the embarrassment black eye of the NFL this year. But somebody has to win it, and somebody's going to get the host, probably the Dallas Cowboys, you know, uh, or, or, or one of those teams, the New York Giants, because the East is so good, in a playoff game, and, and who knows what could happen. I mean, look, the Giants are certainly good, but in the playoffs anything can happen, and I don't think the Giants are a juggernaut. I certainly think the Cowboys are much better than the Saints, so if the Cowboys ended up in New Orleans, I think it would be, you know, a, a significant challenge for New Orleans. But here's the thing. Have the Cowboys proven to us they can win big games? So, yeah, as crazy as it is, this game on Monday night is going to tell us a lot. Now, look, if the Saints go down there and lose, we can really start to, to say that the season's probably trending in the wrong direction because they'll become – they know. The players are smart. They know what's going on. Even though they may try to tune out the white noise, so to say, or not read or, or see a lot, they know. They, they're smart. And so if they lose, then they're going to go into a buy off the loss. Are they going to come back focused and motivated for the final four games, knowing that they're trending the wrong way when a team like Tampa may be trending the right way? Fletcher, appreciate your time as always. Have fun in Atlanta. Stay safe on your travels back home, brother, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. We got to take a timeout. Finalize the poll question of the day, wrap up today's show, and get you set up for Kevin Foot and Footnotes. That's all next. Right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Oh, I want to take a moment to thank our guest, Jordan D. Hill, covering the Dogs, LSU baseball legend Skip Burtman, Southern Jaguars reporter for the advocate Jim Klein, Peter, fantasy football expert Zach Miller, and of course, Fletcher Mackel from WDSU. Uh, this is bizarre, and I have to share it with you. So apparently, Drew Brees announced earlier this week that he was flying to a top-secret location to shoot a new promotional video for Points Bet USA. Well, a video has been leaked on social media of an apparent lightning strike at the location. So people are concerned about Drew Brees now? But it's in Spanish, so no one understands what's going on. And so much so that Points Bet Sports has actually released a statement saying, we're aware of the media coverage regarding Points Bet's brand ambassador, Drew Brees. We're in communication with Brees' team and will continue to monitor events throughout the coming hours. At this stage, we will not be making any further comment. Did something actually happen? Is this all a PR stunt? I don't know. I'm just sharing the information with you. Final results of the poll question of the day. What a way to end the week, by the way. (laughs) final results which conference championship game are you the most enticed by this weekend other than the sec championship 39 percent of you say ucf versus tulane down in yolman stadium 30 percent said utah versus usc tonight for the pac-12 20 percent say tcu versus kansas state in dallas that's the big 12 title game that's tomorrow at 11 and then 11 percent say other thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day left your comments on facebook and twitter we appreciate you well, that's going to do it for today's show and this week. We'll do it all again on Monday, 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Coming up next, Kevin Foote in footnotes right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. <laughs>